Good evening. Please turn with me and your copies of God's Word to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We will continue this evening to see how Paul counsels a church in first century Roman Empire that was full of lots of problems. This church in Corinth was divided, it was split, it was factious. They were also worldly, they were sensual, they were proud, they were judgmental. In fact, starting in verse 10 of chapter 1, Paul has been urging unity among the Corinthian believers. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. And then he begins with a series of rhetorical questions to begin to illustrate why they should be unified. Is Christ divided, he asks? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, no, of course not. And thus, you should be unified in Christ's name. Christ was crucified for you. You were baptized in the triune name of God and not in the name of a man. And then Paul moves into a discussion of God's wisdom seen in the cross about how this wisdom is diametrically opposed to the wisdom of man, to the wisdom of this world, this fleshly age. In fact, the cross is foolishness to the natural man. But to those who are called, it is the wisdom and power of God, Paul says. And then we get to our text, verses 26 through 31, where Paul takes a slightly different approach to illustrate the same principle. God's wisdom is not man's wisdom, and this can be seen by looking at yourselves, he says. The preceding paragraph Paul used to examine the Jews and the Greeks. The Jews demanded signs, the Greeks demand wisdom. But now Paul is focusing his attention on the believers and says, look at yourselves and you'll see the foolishness of God. Paul's implied argument is this. If you really understood the gospel, Corinthian believers... If you really understood the implications of Christ crucified, then you'd understand that God's wisdom is in fact the opposite of man's wisdom and you would stop acting in this divisive way. Or to put it another way, if you really understood God's plan of redemption, his true wisdom, then you'd, be, you'd not be tempted to divide and to split and to follow these men and their worldly virtues. You'd quit dividing over rhetorical flair and speculative philosophy and man's wisdom. Corinthians, if you truly saw what Christ crucified is and what that means, what God's wisdom is, then you'd stop acting in these fleshly, worldly ways, in these divisive ways that are exactly what the world does. In short, he says, if you look at yourselves, you'll see that you're acting like the world. And that's a temptation for all of us, too. It hasn't gone away. It wasn't done away with in first century Roman culture. It is here and live among us. And so that's a high-level overview of what Paul is arguing with this text, what he's trying to do with this long argument that we are jumping in the middle of. And so before we dive in with a closer look, let's look at Paul's section here and read 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. Hear the word of our Lord. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards or according to the flesh, your translation may say. 
Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect and holy word for us. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we are needy. We are weak and foolish in the eyes of the world, and we need your wisdom. We come expectantly that you would feed us, that you would make us wise, that you would make us righteous and holy by the proclamation of your word in the hands of your Holy Spirit. Lord, build your church, build us up, make us more like Christ, and let us boast in no one else but Christ and Christ crucified. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Paul's first imperative in verse 26 is also my first point. Consider your calling. Consider your calling. Paul says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful and not many were of noble birth. In an effort to further explain his previous statements about the wisdom of God seen in Christ crucified on the cross, Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to consider their own calling, their own salvation. Not many of you were wise according to the flesh. Not many of you were were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of them were the learned philosophers of the day. Not many of them were scholars of good repute. Not many of them were powerful, powerful, or we could say influential. Not many of them were trendsetters, influencers, movers and shakers. Not many of them were industry leaders. And not many of you were of noble birth, Paul says, which is a little bit harder for us to imagine because of the culture in which we live. But in Paul's day, indeed, for most of history, your social class was deeply significant. Being in the upper classes opened doors for you, and being in lower classes meant certain doors were shut. Being noble brought with it status, clout, prestige, Honor And being in the lower classes, even being a slave, of which many were in the early church, came with dishonor, shame, submission, things that the world hates. And the Corinthians knew this. They knew their own histories. Most of them were not rich, were not powerful, were not elite. And yet God chose to call them. And so the irony of the Corinthians, those that were judging people based on worldly virtues of rhetoric and philosophy and fleshly status and wisdom, is that if God had judged them according to the same standards that the Corinthians are now judging other people, then the Corinthians themselves would have been excluded. They would not have measured up to the very virtues that they are now demanding of their leaders. And they would have fallen short of the very things that they were dividing the church over. So why did Paul say, consider your calling? Well, that's to point out that when God called you, 
He showed no regard for the things that you're currently valuing, believers of Corinth. Worldly wisdom and fleshly statue are of, stature are of no importance in God's plan and calling. Indeed, when he called you, believers in Corinth, he mainly chose those that were a living embodiment of the opposite of those worldly values. And that's significant. So I'll, I'll say it again. When God chooses to call, he primarily chooses those people to save that are the opposite of what the world values. God goes after the broken and the weak. He likes to call the sick and the sinful and the foolish and the uneducated. He loves the orphans and the widows. That's the wonderful wisdom of God. He chooses to save those that would have no other hope other than him. Those that have nothing to contribute to him. Those that are hopeless. You see, the world would say that we should value the strong, the independent thinkers, the self-confident, those that are influential, who have done something with their lives. But God primarily calls the weak and the simple and the unsure and the obscure. In fact, we could say very simply that God loves the nobodies of this world. God loves the nobodies. And if you're a believer here tonight, then I challenge you to consider your calling. How many of you were doing well on your own before you came to Christ? Were you in control? Did you have it all together? Were you pursuing and growing in virtue? Did you have your act together? Or were you a slave, a slave to your passions, unable to steer yourself away from your lustful indulgences? Most of us, if we really reflected, would admit that before Christ, we were not in control. We were enslaved. We were enslaved to the praise of men. We were enslaved to the pursuit of possessions, greed, more stuff. We were enslaved to worldly ambition. Enslaved to lust. But the good news is that God called. God chose. God effectively and securely lifted you out of the mire. He worked in your heart and he lifted you out of the filth of this world. And he didn't do it because you were so wise and powerful and influential on your own. In fact, he did that in spite of your lack of these things. He called you because you weren't wise. In fact, you were foolish. You weren't influential and powerful, but many of us were insignificant and not, not influential in this world. And that's the humbling good news of the gospel. And if God chooses to call and to set his love primarily upon the insignificant of this world, then who are we to judge differently than God? If God chooses to judge the value of people, not according to their fleshly status and their flashy skills, then who are we to judge according to the world's standards? Why would we lower ourselves to the benchmark set by fallen men in this world? It happens all the time. You remember the buzz in the evangelical world when a single photo of Justin Bieber holding a Bible showed up? Everybody flipped out. You know, God is gracious, but he's really specially gracious if we could just get an influential guy like that. If we could just get a Kanye West on our team, then things will be great. People in the church are flocking to such things, and it happened in Corinth, it happens today. 
We're judging according to worldly standards. If we just had an influential Christian on our team, then maybe Christians wouldn't be so maligned in culture. If we had a famous Christian, then finally we wouldn't be seen as foolish and insignificant in the eyes of the world. You see the flawed logic there. Paul is pointing out the exact opposite. Not only did God not call us according to our worldly stature, he mainly chooses to call people in spite of their lack of stature. Consider your calling, my brothers, for in considering your calling well, you will be able to see what God prioritizes and why. But before we get to the why, before I talk about the next couple of verses that explain why God would call the nobodies of this world, let me make a brief comment about Paul's other words. Paul makes clear three times that God doesn't always work in predictable ways. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. Three times he says not many. That's significant. In the days of the great evangelist George Whitfield, there was a noble countess of Huntington who used to say that she was saved by an M, the letter M, because she said God's word declares not many noble instead of not any noble. And she was thankful for that M, that grace, that her nobility didn't exclude her from the kingdom of God. God does indeed sometimes save those that have worldly riches and worldly power and worldly influence. So no man, no matter how powerful in the eyes of the world, is outside of the scope of God's calling to save. But any person here who has the influence of the world or has wealth or has position needs to take note of this, that God's ordinary means of saving sinners is through weakness, not strength. It's through submission, not domination, and through foolishness and not worldly wisdom. And so if you're a somebody in the eyes of the world, if you think you are hot stuff and the world is your friend, then be warned you are in danger. It's only by becoming a fool to the world that you can become truly wise. It's only by becoming weak in the eyes of the world that you can become truly strong. And it's only by admitting your inability to save yourself, your inability to conquer your own sinfulness, your inability to clean your own conscience, your inability to be perfect, which is what is required. It's only in admitting that weakness that you can come to Christ and lay hold of him by faith and believe that he's the perfect lamb of God, lamb of God who completely and powerfully saves sinners. It's only then that you can find true strength and wisdom. So I encourage you, come to Christ and become a nobody. Become a nobody in Christ's name, rather than remaining a somebody to the world who will end up being a nobody in hell apart from Christ. Consider your calling, my brothers. Second, not only does Paul encourage us to consider our calling, but we should also consider God's plan. Consider God's plan. And now we get to the why of our calling. Why would God choose those that aren't rich, that aren't powerful, that aren't influential, that aren't wise according to the flesh? Well, Paul answers that in verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Having urged the Corinthians to examine the empirical data, that is, consider yourselves, consider your calling, 
about how God chooses to call, by having them examine their own history. Now Paul moves on to the theological data. The fundamental reason for the greater number of nobodies in the church is that God prefers nobodies because when God calls a nobody, it shames the somebodies. When God passes over the big shots of this world in favor of the little guys, it actually disgraces the proud big shots of this world. That's what he says. He chooses the foolish to shame the wise of this world. He chooses the weak to shame the strong of this world. He chooses the low, the despised, the hated, the filthy, to shame those that think they are really something. And that's God's plan. To humble the proud by calling the lowly and the nothings. To bring to nothing those things that the world thinks are really something. By calling nothings into existence. Just like he called the world into existence by his very speech. He calls his church into existence by his very breath. That's what he does. And God makes his people the possessors of a glorious salvation and by doing so bestows upon them an eternal significance but thereby judges as worthless the things that he's passed over those things that he's passed over he brings them to nothing the things that the world craves things that the world values that's because God's ultimate reason for the manner of his choosing is verse 29 so that no man may boast in the presence of God, so that nobody can boast. God chooses and God calls according to his good pleasure, his divine wisdom, and not for anything else. Nothing in us, nothing we've done, nothing we've earned, nothing we've accomplished or contributed plays a factor in our calling. Let me illustrate it this way. If heaven had an immigration department that worked like the immigration departments of this world, then Peter... And Paul would be at the pearly gates and they would judge people as they came in based upon their skills, their products, their education, their wealth, all the things that they've done for God in this life. And that would mean that those that got into heaven would have a reason to boast. They would have a legitimate reason to boast about contributing to their salvation. Even if it was one drop, one percentage of their salvation wasn't grace, it was part of their work then they could boast in that 1%. But that's exactly the flawed logic that Paul is chopping off at the knees right here. Paul is saying that God has taken the action in such a way so that no man may boast in his presence. God is the one who calls. God is the one who elects. God is the one who predestines the end before the beginning. God is the master architect who crafted this foolish plan of redemption before the foundation of the world. God is the one who has set his son to be the sacrifice in the place of his people. God's son fulfilled the law in the place of a lawless people. God judged sin and death and the curse on the back of his own son. And God will send his son one day to judge and to finally redeem a people who had no hope outside of him. You see, God is the beginning and end of every bit of our salvation. And God is a zealous God. He is zealous for his own glory, and he will not share it with another through their boasting. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to idols. Not only will God not share his glory with another, it would actually be sinful idolatry for him to share his glory with something else. He won't share his glory 
He won't share it with me or with you or with angels or with Satan or especially any man or woman who would dare boast in his presence. That's why he chooses to call the nobodies of this world. Because he is God and we are not. Because he deserves all the glory and praise and we do not. He is the only one to be boasted in and we are robbed of any possibility of boasting in our own strength. Why would God choose to call the foolish and the simple of this world? Because calling nobodies proclaims to all of creation that God really is somebody. Somebody worthy of praise and worthy of boasting. He's worthy of honor and glory and our hearts and our love. And that's the plan that he proclaims. Have you seen the glory of this plan, of his calling from the beginning? Have you tasted of the divine grace that's offered to you because of the work of Christ on the cross? Christ's death is the only atonement for sin. And all you need to do is to come and believe in this simple, foolish message of Christ crucified in the place of his people. And you too can become partakers of his divine grace. Do not delay. Do not put off this decision. Do not rely on your own strength and do not count on tomorrow or on believing later at some other date. Today can be the day of your salvation. Turn from your boasting in self boasting in the pride of life and your self-sufficient arrogance and hear how God has robbed you of any ground of your boasting. Instead, come to Christ and see how liberating it can be to boast in Him and Him alone. That's God's plan. Consider the glory of that plan. Finally, not only should we consider our calling and consider God's plan, we should also consider the Savior. Consider the Savior. Verse 30 and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you are in Christ, and Paul doesn't tell us that we have nothing to boast about. What he's been arguing is that if you boast in the things that the world boasts about, you're boasting in the wrong things. Paul here is quoting a passage from Jeremiah 9. You probably have heard this verse. Jeremiah says, But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Paul adapts the quotation from Jeremiah to specifically emphasize the Christ-centered element of God's plan of redemption, an element that has been made explicit to the world in the story of the cross. The one who boasts should only boast in Christ, a crucified Christ, and in the calling of God on our lives. That's because in our divine calling, Christ has become to us many things. Indeed, in Christ, we find everything we need. All that a believer could desire is found in Christ. Paul says that Christ has become our wisdom. He's the embodiment of us to all wisdom and learning. He's the pinnacle of wisdom. He's the prime teacher. He's the principal instructor of what true wisdom looks like. But not only that, the wisdom is most clearly seen on the cross. True wisdom looks like joyful submission to God's plan, to God's providential plan. Rather than worldly swagger or grabbing for power or the praise of men, rather than fleshly pride and political posturing, it looks like the cross. 
That's the point from verse 24. Christ crucified is the wisdom of God, and in our divine calling, he has become that wisdom for us. But Paul says that Jesus is also our righteousness. This word righteous is a common word in Paul's writings. It's courtroom language that drives home a verdict, a verdict of not guilty for those united to Christ. The cosmic courtroom before God as the all-seeing judge, we are all born unrighteous and guilty. But in Christ, the gavel has been slammed and we have been declared to be not guilty because of Christ's work, because of the cross. Our sins are counted to him on the cross and his righteousness is counted to us, thereby earning for us resurrection and eternal life with God. He has become our righteousness, so we don't have to do like the world and struggle to vindicate and prove ourselves and our reputations in the eyes of other men. We can trust that God knows we're not guilty. We can know that God sees us as righteous, even if the world sees us as wicked and foolish. But we're not only righteous in a mere declaration way, declarative way, a forensic way in the courtroom, Paul says that Jesus has also become our sanctification. Or your translation may say that Christ has become our holiness. You see, our union with Christ, which is received when we come to Jesus by simple faith, is the lifeblood of our holiness. He grants us his very Holy Spirit who works in our lives to gradually carve away the remaining sins that cling so closely and to remake us more and more into the image of the Son. And when we reach our final home, we have a promised full holiness that we will possess. No more sin, no more lust, no more pride, no more wrestling with the wickedness that is always around us. and No more boasting in self. Nothing but holiness as we assume our glorified bodies and enter into our final state. And Paul sums up these aspects of salvation by saying that Christ is one final thing for us, our redemption. Redemption is a word that highlights the liberation aspect of our salvation. Christ is our freedom. He's our liberator. He looses our bonds. He breaks our chains. We're no longer bound as slaves to sin. We're no longer pawns under the control of the devil. In Christ, we've been given a new name, a new master, a new leader. We've been brought by a new and greater Moses out of the Egypt of sin. And even though we may feel like we're wandering in the desert of this world, we have to remember that the cross has already judged our enemy. Jesus has defeated Satan. He has secured his defeat. The war is over, even though we may feel the frequent tug of remaining sin. We are no longer bound and chained to sin. Our depravity is no longer dominating us. We are free and able to overcome because the power of Christ and his redemption. And that's good news. Christ has become everything that we need. Nothing is left for us to earn. No part of our redemption remains incomplete. He's given us everything we need and he's provided what we lacked and he's done it by his grace and his choosing alone. And that's why we have to be on guard against falling into the same temptations that the Corinthians were falling into. See, we can be tempted to prize the things that the world prizes, to boast in human strength, human erudition, to to seek the influential and the strong and the well-spoken, and to neglect those that are poorly spoken. 
that are weak and have nothing really valuable to add to the conversation. I'm sure you've had a thought like this. Perhaps you have. If we just had someone like him at our church, we'd be set. Maybe if we had, if we had a few more donors with some deep pockets, then, then we could really do some work for the kingdom. If we had a few more doctors and lawyers, if we had, maybe if we got the mayor or the governor, maybe then we'd be set. Somebody big, you know? That's how the world thinks. The world wants to sign the biggest and most influential endorsements possible. Christ, instead, prioritizes the least of these. The slaves, the weak, the poor, the homeless, the addicts, the immigrants, the orphans, the widows. That's who Christ delights to call in his kingdom. He delights in it. And we must not let the temptation for fleshly values to creep into our thoughts when judging the value of someone we see. Rather, we are called to boast in the Lord and only in the Lord. But what does that mean? What does it mean to boast, specifically to boast in the Lord? That word is used almost 60 times in the New Testament, 55 of them are in Paul. He uses the term negatively and positively. Negatively, like somebody is bragging on themselves positively like here and to boast in christ means that we will put our confidence in him not in ourselves not in our strength it means i'll trust that he is the strength i need he is the wisdom i need he is the power i need he's able to bring about everything he promises in his word and he's going to keep me safe all the way home or to look at it from another direction every time i'm afraid I'm a little anxious, a little fidgety, a little worried about something. It's usually because I'm putting my confidence in myself, in my own strength. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do it. I'm not sure it's going to go like I want it to go. I'm not sure I'm strong enough or wise enough to do it. And so we get anxious rather than boasting in the Lord and his strength, putting our confidence in him and his wisdom and nothing else. Boasting in the Lord also means that I will not boast in myself. Every time my pride rears its ugly head, every time I get into some unnecessary argument, every time I get a little impatient, I get irritated, get annoyed by somebody, get easily offended, each of these are times that I'm revealing a bit of pride that's remaining in my heart because I'm boasting in myself, in my wisdom, the value of my opinion. How could they not listen to me? The value of my time. Don't they know how busy I am? The value of my importance. Don't they know who I am? How dare they talk to me like that? That's boasting in self. To boast in the Lord means I will not boast in myself. I will boast in Christ. Finally, and I'll close with this. To boast in the Lord means that I will speak of him more than I speak of myself. If God really has done everything in Christ, if he has called, if he has chosen, if he has redeemed, if he has justified, if he has sanctified and done all of this in spite of our sinful behaviors, then why would I not want to tell people about that? What have you done that gives you reason to boast in yourself more than Christ? What have you accomplished apart from divine grace that merits you 
any significant airtime. If you've grown in holiness, it's because of his grace. If you've beaten some sin, it's because of his grace. If you've turned your life around, it's because of his grace. If you have any sort of spiritual gifts at all, it's because of his grace. If you have any natural talents, any natural desires, it's because of his grace. If you've had any prayer answered, it's because of his grace. It's all grace, start to finish, so that no man may boast in his presence. If you're foolish enough to believe that you can work your way into heaven or into righteousness, then hear Paul's words and renounce your foolishness. And see instead the Christ crucified in the place of sinners. Know that you can become a child of God this very night and trade in your worldly and exhausting self-boasting for the weak and foolish and liberating boasting only in the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, we confess that too often we boast in ourselves. We are quick to remind others of how great we are, of what a great job we've been doing, of how influential we are. Father, I pray that you would strike that from our hearts, that you would instead fill us with the boasting only of Christ and Christ crucified. Help us to speak only and often of the grace that we've been shown in Christ. I ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close tonight by singing the doxology. Trey's going to come and lead us.